Good evening. And um, today we're going to do something different, uh, not the usual. Uh, usually we either learn the Parsha or we learn a talk from the Rebbe, a Hasidic discourse, something like that. Today we're going to be learning letters from the Rebbe. Um, I'd like to explain or give you a bit of an introduction to what these letters are and what they mean. Um, it's very common for a rabbi to write letters to his community, right? He knows his community and um, he knows his community and at certain times during the year, it is only appropriate for a rabbi to communicate important messages to his community, to his flock. We call those pastoral letters, right? You know, pastoring to the flock um, and, and uh, the rabbi writes a letter who was the Rebbe's community? Who was the Rebbe's community? Good evening, Judy. Good to see you. Thank you. So who was the Rebbe's community? Every single Jew. Right? When we say in Chabad, we don't have a membership policy. Every single Jew is part of that membership. We got that from the Rebbe. And when the Rebbe wrote those pastoral letters to his community, the way he wrote it was, to the sons and daughters of Israel. That, that was the that was the title. That was the opening. That, that, that was the as it was addressed to the sons and daughters of Israel. So every single one of them, every single Jew, to our Jewish brethren everywhere. This started from the very, very beginning in 1950. The Rebbe addressed these letters. Now, when would the Rebbe write these pastoral letters? Um, always before Rosh Hashanah and before Pesach. Uh, before Rosh Hashanah, it was either on the 18th of Elul, which is the birthday of the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, the birthday of the Shemto, the founder of, of the, the Hasidic movement in general. Um, you have, uh, and then on the, for Nisan, I mean, sorry, for the holiday of Passover, so let me just uh, open this here. Okay. And uh, before Passover, typically the, the letters were addressed on the 11th of Nisan, which is the Rebbe's birthday. Uh, so those were the typical times when the Rebbe would pen or author these pastoral letters to every single Jew. Uh, starting, I believe, in 1972, the Rebbe started to do two letters before these holidays. Um, so before Pesach, the Rebbe would write a letter, let's say, on the first day of Nisan, Rosh Chodesh, and also on the 11th of Nisan. When it came to before Rosh Hashanah, there was two letters, either both of them before Rosh Hashanah, or one of them before Rosh Hashanah, one of them after Rosh Hashanah, before Yom Kippur. This was, uh, I say, a given. But the Rebbe would pen these letters to all the Jewish people then. And then there were other times, um, on certain occasions, when the Rebbe would do so. Hanukkah, uh, maybe in connection with Shavuos, but th th that wasn't the rule. So if you think about it, the fact that the Rebbe would write these letters to every single Jew, that's actually a very uh, profound concept. When you write a letter to someone, you, you know your audience, right? And you write it for that audience. Here, who's the Rebbe's audience? Every single Jew. We're talking here about 13, 14, 16 million people are the intended audience of this letter. Now, just so where were these letters? Who, who was it sent to? How did it go out there? Like, what exactly does it mean? So the Rebbe would write the letters in Yiddish, Hebrew, and English. It was originally written in Yiddish, translated to Hebrew, or translated and translated into English. The Rebbe reviewed all of these translations. Um, and the intention was that these letters should be published in newspapers. So, for example, in the early 50s, 60s, and the 70s, there were a lot of Yiddish newspapers in America and throughout the world. 
And so after when the Rebbe would you know, give out this letter, right it was sent out to all of these newspapers. And the intention was that they should publish a letter of the Lubavitcher Rebbe penned to every single Jew in their newspaper. Uh, in Israel, there was a very big effort uh, on getting the Rebbe's letter translated to Hebrew into uh, as many newspapers as possible. And we're not talking about uh, orthodox-leaning newspapers. We're talking about the most secular, you know, off-the-beaten-track type of newspapers. And when you're talking about Yiddish newspapers, the amount of Yiddish newspapers that were thriving in the 50s in New York and in general in the United States, most of them were not orthodox. Most of them were very, very secular, very, you know, against tradition, very anti-tradition. And there was these newspapers that the Rebbe was targeting. The Rebbe wanted that this letter should reach every single Jew, not orthodox Jews necessarily, every single Jew. Just to illustrate how serious the Rebbe took these letters, Many years later, like in the 70s, 19, in fact, to be exact, in 1978, uh, a fellow wrote to the Rebbe that he was disappointed he hasn't received correspondence from the Rebbe. Apparently, he was someone that in the earlier years would write to the Rebbe that he would receive a letter. In 1978, there was a lot of work going on in the Rebbe's office, and not necessarily the Rebbe received their correspondence. Uh, you know, so the Rebbe writes to me, says, you said I didn't correspond with you. In fact, since the last time we corresponded, I have, I have issued uh, several of these public letters to every single Jew, and I have not heard your feedback of how you absorbed and understood these letters and how you started to act upon them. So in other words, everyone says, what do you mean I didn't communicate with you? I communicated with you before Pesach and before Shoshana with these letters, and I didn't hear from you about them. And this, is a, this, was, about a, this was a rabbi, right? So, so with these letters, the rabbi wants to um, communicate with the, the greatest scholars, and on the other end, the simplest, most assimilated Jews possible. Why? Because he says this is addressed to all Jewish people. It doesn't say to all Orthodox Jews or to all Hasidim. It says this is addressed to every single Jew. So I'd like to, uh, and, and by the way, the, the English letters, if, if you want to read original, uh, original thoughts by the Rebbe, teachings by the Rebbe that were originally published in English, that's these letters. Okay, it's uh, I don't know if you have this at home, but it's, it's a beautiful book that's available on kahatonline.com, and uh, that's from the Chabad Publishing House. It's called To the Sons and Daughters of Our People Israel Everywhere, every single Jew, wherever they may be. Um, it's two volumes, one of them is focused on the Passover letters, another one is focused on the Shoshana letters. Um, they're tremendous letters. I'll tell you just on a personal note whenever I'm trying to figure out a theme of what to write in an article, I go to these letters. I don't copy the letters, but if you're looking for a theme, something that's relevant to something that's refreshing, uh, that can completely change the way you look at the holiday, you go to these letters. So today I'd like to focus on two letters. One letter is from the 1950s, another one is from 1960s, specifically 1957, another one is from 1965. The reason I chose them is because I believe uh, the first letter uh, is, is very powerful in its own right because it, it framed a problem provided a solution, and this became something that is embedded within the Chabad ethos. And everyone takes it for granted. Um, the fact that Chabad does everything in its power to make sure that every Jew, wherever they may be, has the opportunity to celebrate Pesach comes directly from this 1957 letter. Uh, the, the theme that is expressed here is basically what, uh, what, what, what animates this entire campaign, and I just I also want to just express this idea that the fact that you have um, 
you know, the, the fact that Chabad has a certain way of operating, a certain, you know, way of doing things and a certain focus, it comes as a result of a very specific direction provided by the Rebbe. And it wasn't, it wasn't like top-down command. It was explained. It's an ideology. And the Rebbe communicated those ideologies and that inspiration. One of the ways was through these letters. And the fact that this letter was addressed to every single Jew tells us that it's not just a Chabad thing. It's not just a campaign that should be done by Chabad, spearheaded by Chabad, uh, but it's something that, that's relevant to every single Jew. All righty, so let's go straight into it. By the grace of God, the 11th of Nisan, 5717, that's the Hebrew year, Brooklyn, New York, greeting and blessing. The festival of Pesach is inaugurated by the central theme, when thy son will ask thee. Why did we pick that as the main theme of, uh, of Pesach? Well, what's the main, what's the main uh, celebration of Pesach? The Seder. And the entire Seder is, it was, was um, created around this instruction in the Torah. When the Jewish people left Egypt, God said, Ki When your son, when your child is going to ask, you are going to answer. The entire Seder is like question and answer format. And it's specifically, um, it was set up that it should be there as an, as, a, as an educational experience, a hands-on educational experience that really educates the children of what Pesach is all about. Um, and the Haggadah is based on the commandment of the Torah, then shalt thou tell thy son. So there's the son asking, and then there's the father responding, the father teaching. So when you go into the Agada, the Agada introduces us to four sons. Right? That's famous. Everyone knows about the four sons. There are various ways of asking questions and formulating the answers, depending upon whether the son belongs to the category of the wise, the wicked, the simple, or the one who knows not how to ask. So what's the difference between these four sons? So the wise one is the one that's learning to understand things. He wants to understand things in more deeper fashion. He's a machaya, right? He's a pleasure to deal with. He's asking stimulating questions, and you know, it's it's, it's a very you know, geshmak. You know, geshmak means very pleasurable to deal with this guy. Yeah, kind of like this one. Yeah, very pleasurable. Uh, why? Because he has good questions and he wants to know. He wants to understand. Then you have the wicked one. What's the wicked one? He's the rebellious bunchik. He comes in and says, hey, "What's this all about? What's that all about?" He's not asking probing questions. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's trying to provoke an argument, right? He's trying to make noise. Yeah, that's the big one. Then comes the simple one. The simple one, he just basically, you know, tell me what's going on. I'm just not too deep, not too, just, just tell me what's happening. That's it. I just want to be familiar. And then the one who knows not how to ask, this guy comes to the say there, you know, I'm deep, not Couldn't care less. Okay, fine. I'm waiting for the matzo balls. That's it. In other words, he's not interested and the goings on of the Seder. He does it. You, know, you give him you this, you that. So what does the Haggadah tell us? That we have to engage all four of them, right? While the four sons differ from one another in their reaction to the Seder service, they have one thing in common. They are all present at the Seder service. They showed up. What was it that someone said about being successful or something? 90% is about showing up. What was it? You show up to the meeting, you're 90% there, right? So these, these guys, they showed up to the Seder. They're here. They're part of the club. Even the so-called wicked son is there. 
taking an active, though rebellious, interest in what is going on in Jewish life around him. Right? So he's involved. This, at least, justifies the hope that someday also the wicked one will become wise. And all the Jewish children attending the Seder will become conscientious, right? Conscientious, Torah, and mitzvah-observing Jews. Okay? Why? Because he's there. Once he's there, there's what to work with. There's what to deal with. Now, remember, this is 1957. It's a kind of Try to put yourself into that into that world, into that um, world. You know, just to, to all of the predictions were that by the early seventies there will be no Orthodox Judaism. That that was the prediction in the fifties, which basically meant there would be no yeshivas. It meant that there would be no need for Orthodox shechita. There would be no need for anything, whatever. It will be you know Judaism would be like this this relic of the past, some type of culture, and that's it. That's what it's going to be. That's what everyone in the 50s thought was going to happen by the early 70s. That's not what happened at the end of the day. But this is the Rebbe writing in 1957. Unfortunately, there is in our time of confusion and obscurity another kind of Jewish child. The child who is conspicuous by his absence from the Seder service. The one who has no interest whatsoever in Torah and mitzvahs, laws and customs who is not even aware of the Seder Shal Pesach, of the exodus from Egypt, and the subsequent revelation at Sinai. So the fact that the Rebbe is addressing this issue, so a few things are going on here. Number one, the Rebbe is telling us, you know, the knee-jerk reaction to someone not showing up is what? No one needs you. You don't even care enough to show up. Goodbye and good luck. You won't get an invitation next time. Right? What good could you add to the community if we can't even walk through the door? I mean, we invited you. Yeah, we sent you an invitation. You didn't walk through the door, so forget about it. It says, no, 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 this is a concern. There's a problem here. Whereas the Haggadah only spoke about four sons, the Rebbe said, in today's day and age, we have to add a fifth. We have to talk about the fifth. We have to think about the fifth. He's missing. He's not here. How do you know he's, how do you know that he exists? Because I have my I have my thumb on on the pulse of the Jewish community, and I know that the numbers are not reflected properly based on those that are present. You're right. We have a diverse table. We have four different sons here. We have the wise. We have the wicked. Right, and we're trying to engage them all and deal with them all. It's all good, but the fact of the matter is that there are tons that aren't here at all. We have to deal with it. I emphasize this because what follows could come across as very, very harsh. Rebbe comes across very, very, like, you know, candid. It's a very, very candid letter. And, and sometimes you might look at this and say, wow, the Rebbe is being kind of so uncharacteristic. You know, the Rebbe is so loving and so inviting and welcoming, etc. But you know what? When there's a crisis, there's a fire burning, you have to have candid conversations. And with this paragraph, the Rebbe says, I'm not dismissing anybody. On the contrary. I'm painfully aware that the absence of this person is a problem. And now we have to find the solution of how to reach the absentee. So let's continue here. This, prevents, this presents a grave challenge, which should command our attention long before Passover and the Seder night. Right? You can't start, you're sending them to say, oi, 
this guy's not here and that one's not here. No, no, no. This has to think about weeks in advance. For no Jewish child should be forgotten and given up. We must make every effort to save also that lost child and bring the absentee to the Seder table. Determined to do so and driven by a deep sense of compassion and responsibility, we need have no fear of failure. The fact that you won't succeed, that shouldn't stop you from trying. I'm always reminded of this beautiful concept that I actually read in one of the Rebbe's letters. The Rebbe pointed out that, you know, who's the, who's the main character of Exodus? Moses, right? Moses is like, the, you know, he's the hero. He's the protagonist, basically. What's the story of his life? When he was three months old, he was sailing on the Nile River. His life was in danger. Who saved him? Batia, an Egyptian princess. How did she save him? He was all the way out there in the water, and she was far away. She couldn't reach him. According to all physics, according to all everything, she couldn't reach. That's it. No one's going to help her either. Who wants to save a Jewish child? She stretched out her hand. And her hand stretched and stretched and stretched until it reached the basket and she was able to pull it out. And that's how Moses was saved. And that's how we have Passover. That's how we have Pesach. What did she do? She did her part. The fact that she knew she would fail didn't stop her from stretching out her arm. Once you do your part, regardless of the fact that according to nature you can't succeed, God will do his part. So that's what it says here. So why are you going to even reach out to that Jew and try to bring them to the Seder? Because you are driven by a deep sense of compassion and responsibility. And when you have that, that, uh, that sense, you're going to do everything and anything to go and reach out to every single Jew. In order to remedy an undesirable situation of any kind, it is necessary to attack the roots of the evil. Why is it that they're not children? Let's try to figure that out. Because if you're going to reach out and try to bring them in, and the same problem that motivated them to not show up is still prevalent and is still so strong, then why would they walk through the door? The same is true in this case. The regrettable truth is that the blame for the above-mentioned lost generation lies squarely on the shoulders of the parents. Why? It is the result of an erroneous psychology and misguided policy on the part of some immigrants arriving in a new and strange environment. Finding themselves a small minority and encountering certain difficulties, which are largely unavoidable in all cases of resettlement. Some parents had the mistaken notion, which they injected also into their children, that the way to overcome these difficulties is to become quickly assimilated with the new environment by discarding the heritage of their forefathers and abandoning the Jewish way of life. Finding the ensuing process somewhat distasteful, as such a course is bound to be full of spiritual conflict, some parents were resolved that their children would be spared the conflict altogether in order to justify their desertion and appease their injured conscience. It was necessary for them to devise some rationale, and they deluded themselves and deluded their children by the claim that in their new surroundings, the Jewish way of life, which is the observance of the Torah and mitzvahs, did not fit. They looked for, and therefore also found, quote-unquote, false with the true Jewish way of life. While in their non-Jewish environment, everything seemed to them only good and attractive. A very candid and open conversation that I was having with American Jews, not just in America, all over the place. He's saying, I understand the problem. Resettlement. I'm also an immigrant. 
you know, I'm also an immigrant. The Rebbe was an immigrant. He came from Russia. If he came from, you know, from, from a thriving Jewish community in Dnepr Petrovsk in the Ukraine, he's coming. Then he was in other places. Then he comes to the United States. He says, yeah, resettlement is tough. But you think that what is the, what, what's the best thing to do? Assimilate, right? The problem is assimilation causes inner conflict. Being conflicted is very painful. So you don't want your children to have that pain. So what do you do? You try to remove Judaism from their conscience. You try to just not give them that element that they received from their parents in the step. By this attitude, the said parents hoped to assure their children's existence and survival in the new environment. In other words, they embraced the melting pot of America, but in a flawed fashion. They wanted to just blend in and disappear. Problem is, you can run, you can't you can hide, right? You can't, you can't really disappear. But what kind of existence is it if everything spiritual and holy is traded for the material? What kind of survival is it if it means the sacrifice of the soul for the amenities of the body? Moreover, in their retreat from Yiddishkeit, they turned what they thought was an escape to freedom into an escape to servitude, pathetically trying to imitate the non-Jewish environment, failing to see that such imitation by its caricature and inferiority complex can only call forth mockery and derision and can only offend the sensibilities of those whose respect and acceptance they are so desperately trying to win. A very, very pointed concept, in fact, Rabbi Sachs, Jonathan Sachs, he, I, I was by the, by the Chabad convention when he spoke. He, by the way, he was very plain spoken, very eloquent, but very plain spoken. Like he, he just said things, <laughs> you know, you understood him, that's it. He said, I have found that non-Jews respect Jews who respect Judaism. They don't respect Jews who don't respect Judaism. That, he just put it very simply. In other words, if you are, if you are, if you're trying to come off as something that you're not, people don't trust you. They don't believe you. And they, they just, you know, it, it just evokes from within them a, a certain, it rubs them wrong. You want to try and convince everybody that you're just like them? No, you're not. You're different. Be different. Embrace your difference. Embrace what makes you unique. That's fine. Um, let's continue here. The same false approach to the minority problem, whereby the misguided minority seeks to ensure its existence by self-dissolution, which essentially means suicide, or at any rate, self-crippling, has dominated not only individuals, but unfortunately has been made the creed of certain groups thrown together by a set of circumstances. This gave rise to certain dissident movements of the Jew on the Jewish scene, which either openly or subterfugally yeah, seek to undermine subterfuge, like oh, yeah. Seek to undermine the Torah which Moses commanded us as he received it from the one God and transmitted it to our people. The divine Torah which gives our people its unique and distinctive character among the nations of the world. Verily, these movements, while differing from each other, have one underlying ideology in common. That we will be as the nations, as the families of the countries, to serve wood and stone. Quote from Ezekiel. Ezekiel lived in a time it was after the destruction of the first holy temple. The Jewish people were in exile. And by the way, it's interesting. 
what those 70 years of exile did to the Jews, 2,000 years of exile did not do to us. The Jews post-first temple destruction, after, seven, after just a few decades of exile, were almost completely assimilated. It was a really bad situation. After the destruction of the second temple, 2,000 years haven't brought us that level of assimilation. Um, and, and to the point that the Jews basically said, they told Ezekiel, the prophet, they said, we don't want to be Jews anymore. Right? This is a quote from Ezekiel, chapter 20. We will be as the nations, as the families of the countries, to serve wood and stone. We have no need for Judaism. God forgot about us, we forget about God. That's it. But God wouldn't take that. God wouldn't take that. We'll see that in the, in the next letter, actually. Very interesting. Okay, so it's not just a problem of specific individuals. I'm saying that there are entire movements within Judaism that are promoting this approach. That we've got to, you know, just water everything down and move everything away. We've got to assimilate. We've got to be like all the, everyone around us. The dire consequences of this utterly false approach were that thousands upon thousands of Jews have been severed from their fountain of life, from their fellow Jews, and from their true faith. Deprived of spiritual life and content, there grew up children who no longer belong to the four sons of the Haggadah, not even in the category of the wicked one. They are almost a, they are almost a total loss to themselves and to their fellow Jews and true Yiddishkeit, which are inseparable. I have a friend. He, he, he is very big in, in social media. A very interesting guy. So he said, you know, very often on social media I see, and specifically you know, on campuses, so whenever there's a holiday, so college campuses, you know, Chabad or, or young boys or girls are out there and they're offering people to do a mitzvah to shake the lulav or hear the shayfar, different things. And there are plenty of people that they kind of, they, they, they express their displeasure at it on social media. Oh, why did the Chabad stop me and this and that, blah, blah, blah. So he said he, he was being interviewed about, you know, this whole concept of going out on the street and doing mitzvahs there. He said, for all of those that, that, that have found uh, th that critique, this idea of offering mitzvahs on the streets for people to do a mitzvah on the spot, he says, for those that critique it, Check your privilege. Check your privilege. Ooh, now that's like a big word. So let me check your privilege. So most of the people that critique it are people that had the benefit of having some type of Jewish education, of being part of a family that provided some type of Jewish life. They went to synagogue for, for Rosh Hashanah services, and they come out, and they're annoyed that the Chabadnik is asking them if they heard Shaif. He says, do you know that 90% of American Jewish kids don't even have that? And if not for the, for, for the Chabad Shliach standing with an offering of Shefer, they wouldn't even know about Shefer. So check your privilege. Anyone that has a problem with us reaching out to the fifth son and doing it in such a way that they say, oh, why don't you just uh, bring them into the synagogue? He doesn't know what a synagogue is. If I'm going to sit in the synagogue and wait for someone to walk in and learn how to put on tefillin, you know what I'm going to have. No business. I can close down. What do you mean? Have a membership. Who's interested in membership today? Who's interested in saying, oh, I belong, I this, I that? No one needs that. No one cares for that. And most importantly, check your privilege. Because as a result of certain choices that the previous generations made, the generation today doesn't even have the faintest idea of what they're missing out on. Yeah, that's something we're going to have to fix then. Yeah. We could also talk about it. It's like the concept of symbolically also, not just physically, but that it's sent at the table. There's, there's probably many people who have seders 
but it's not even a Seder anymore. It's like, come on, it's Passover. Let's get together. This is you know, we're not, we're not using the book, but we're going to remember. We'll say a few words, and we're off to the races. Right. We're going to have dinner. Yep. And we'll be done in an hour and a half. That's like the whole house. Boy, hundred percent, hundred percent. That's exactly the point. There are many people that claim to be doing Passover, but they don't have no idea what they're doing. They're having matzah at McDonald's, right? You ever heard this thing? At one point, McDonald's was serving on Pesach night. They were serving matzah balls for all the Jewish. Why not? Why are you saying, come on? Well, I understand. I'm a, I'm a Jewish boy. I'm going to eat supper. I go into McDonald's, and I know that tonight is Pesach somehow. And I see on the thing, oh, Passover matzah ball soup. They'll, they'll make a killing. <laughs> they'll, they'll make a sale. Why shouldn't Why shouldn't they offer matzah ball soup? They know that they have a Jewish clientele. They're going to offer matzah ball soup, right? So w- what is my response to that? What's my response to that? What, what should I say? Go out there and say, how could you be going to McDonald's? My friend, they're in McDonald's. You know what my job is? To make sure that well before Pesach night, I somehow reached out to them and brought to their attention they're going to be a public seder. By the way, this concept of public seder, by the way, public seder, don't take it for granted. This is a huge, huge paradigm shift that the Rebbe brought to the Jewish world. The concept of public seder Never existed. It never existed. When I have Seder at home, that's it. In the 80s, there was once uh, uh, the, the, the two chief rabbis, you know, there's two chief rabbis in Ashkenazic and Sephardic. So they went, they came to the Rebbe for, for a meet. They came, they were in the United States together and they came to the Rebbe to meet with the Rebbe. Very fascinating meetings, actually. They're, they're all recorded. They're all very. So it was in the mid 80s. And the Rebbe, the Rebbe told them it was about a month before Pesach, we said, you know, you have to understand, the chief rabbinate of Israel, it's like a, gov- it's a, like a government agency, right? So they have access to government money. If they want to do a program, there's money there. So he said, why don't, and, and, and they have representatives in all cities because every city in Israel has a chief rabbi. He said, why don't you arrange every city in Israel that the chief rabbi of the city should have a public seder? The people, anyone that needs a seder should come. And, from from the response of the rabbis, it seemed like they had never thought about such an issue. So everyone I said, I said no. In fact, most people in Israel don't have a seder. Just because they get together and they nibble on a little bit of matzah, it doesn't mean they have a seder. They don't. They don't have the the four cups of wine and enough matzah, and they're not told the story of Pesach. So at least provide the option and make it as easy as possible. People can come in and come out whenever they want, but make this idea that everyone in town should know there's a public seder waiting for them. That was, it was a huge, huge thing that the Rebbe introduced to the, to the Jewish world. Today, everyone makes a public center. Of course, of course. Why? Motivated by this. He said, you know how many fifth sons we have out there? We've got to bring them into the Seder. I went to Israel the first time to visit my cousin over 20 years ago. And I asked him about Israel. He said, what? He said, yeah, 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 so that's the fifth son. Um, so let's continue here in the letter. The event of the exodus from Egypt and the festival of Passover are timely reminders, among other things, that not in an attempt to imitate the environment lies the hope for survival, deliverance, and freedom but rather in the unswerving loyalty to our traditions and true Jewish way of life. 
So it says, if we're going to look at the story of Pesach, we'll realize that our circumstances aren't new. We didn't all of a sudden become a minority. It's not true. You're right. When we were in Russia and in the Ukraine, and we lived in the shtetls, and it was 90% Jewish, you think yeah, it was a majority, and we were always a minority even then. But guess what? The default Jewish reality was that we were a minority. In fact, at the very, very beginning of our existence, when we were slaves in Egypt, we were a minority, and we survived that trauma. How did we survive it? Not by assimilating, but by being staunchly Jewish. Right? The Let's continue here. Our our ancestors in Egypt were a small minority and lived in the most difficult circumstances. They were slaves. What could be worse than that? A slave is not uh, on plantations. They were slaves in Auschwitz. It's an interesting point to make, right? It's not just that they were slaves and working for masters who were were vicious. Auschwitz, that wasn't slavery. That was like, you know, barbarism to, to to the greatest extent. That's where the Jewish people were in Egypt. Yet, as our sages relate, they preserve their identity and with pride and dignity, tenaciously clung to their way of life, traditions, and distinct uniqueness. They always spoke the Jewish language, they kept their Jewish names, and they kept their distinct Jewish dress. That's what they did then. And they were a minority. They did not assimilate completely into the Egyptian way of life, even though in the next letter we're going to learn that they assimilated ideologically. That's a different story. But here we're talking about that at least they retained their identity as Jews. Precisely in this way was their existence assured, as also their true deliverance from slavery, physical and spiritual. It is one of the vital tasks of our time to exert all possible effort to awaken in the young generation, as also in those who are advanced in years, but still immature and deeper understanding, a fuller appreciation of the true Jewish values of Torah to Yiddishkeit. A full and genuine Yiddishkeit. Rebbe would always say, you know, age is not about the passport. Yeah. Sometimes you can have a person that's 119 years old and he doesn't know more than the five-year-old Jewish kid that knows how to read alphabet, right? So what does that mean? That, that when it comes to Judaism, they're just like a child, right? They're not, they're still the young generation. Rebbe says we have to reach out to the young generation, not just in years, but also in knowledge of Judaism. Not of which goes under a false label of misrepresented, compromised, or watered-down Judaism. Whatever the trade, whatever <laughs> kind of like relegates all the labels, it's a bunch of trademarks for a bunch of watered down uh, ideas. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Torah, true Judaism. Together with this appreciation will come the realization that only true Yiddishkeit can guarantee the existence of the individual, of each and every Jew, at any time, in any place, and under any circumstances. So after reading all of this, what's going to happen? So, oi. What's what's going to be? Rebbe says, no, no. There is no room for hopelessness in Jewish life. And no Jew should ever be given up as a lost cause. You see this? The Rebbe identifies a huge crisis in our midst. The fifth son, which, by the way, was not very prevalent before the century. Before the war, it was not very prevalent to have the fifth son. Every Jew had a Seder. And not just Matzabos. Most Jews, 95% of the Jews in the world, Orthodox Jews, knowledgeable Jews, they knew what a Seder was. They kept Pesach. Today, it's kind of just opposite, right? So we have this huge amount of Jews that are just not even showing up to the Seder. Because what? what is a Seder? They've never heard of the Seder. Through the proper, compassionate approach of Ahavas Yisrael, even those of the lost generation can be brought back to the love of God 
Avas Hashem, the love of the Torah, Avas Ater. Not only be included in the community of the four sons, but in due course be elevated to the rank of the wise son. I mean, we had this story happen here in El Paso years ago. You probably all know who he is. I'm not going to say his name. About 20 years ago, there was a fellow that moved to town. 15 years ago, he moved to town the day before Passover. He drove from Dallas with his mother. His mother said, you know, tonight is Passover. His father was uh, an atheist. He never grew up with Passover. He never knew what Passover was. But his mother, his father had just died. And his mother was driving with him here to move him into town. He was single. She told him, tonight's Passover, I want to go to a safe. So they stopped by a gas station and they opened up the phone book. They called Chabad. So my father answers. And he has this Texas drawl, like, you know, he sounds like a real cowboy. Hey, Rabbi, tonight's Passover, are you having a Seder? My father asked him, are you Jewish? He said, yeah. Anyway, so he gave, he gave the, the phone to, to his mother. And you know, so she started speaking Yiddish. I said, okay, fine, no problem. Um, come over to the Seder tonight. We had, luckily, we had a public Seder. Luckily, we got another seat. He showed up to the Seder. It was the first time he was by, it was the first time he walked into a synagogue, first time he walked into anything Jewish, first time he saw a Seder, first time he saw Matzah, first time anything. This guy had been the fifth son for years, decades. He was a fifth son. He walked in. He enjoyed the Seder. As he walked out, my father shook his hand and he said, I expect to see you again. It's fine. So he came the next week to services. And somehow he just started to come and come and come and come. And come. Today he lives in California, has a beautiful family and or the Chabad school, whatever. A miracle, complete miracle. He was a fifth son for all of his life. And as a result of a public Seder, as a result, as a result of the Rebbe's vision, forget about vision, as a result of the Rebbe's deep compassion for those fifth sons, for that fifth child that doesn't show up, he said, we have to be set up to get them in the door. Make a public Seder. Make, make a big deal that Passover is coming. Go into the media, talk about Passover, encourage people to keep Passover. Tell them about the story, tell them what it means. You'll get somewhere. You'll bring them in. May God grant that all sons and daughters of Israel be gathered together at the same table of the Seder service. Celebrate the festival of Passover in its true spirit and manner in accordance with the testimonies, statutes, and laws which God our God commanded us. May the gathering also, of those lost tribes of Israel and their assembly at the Seder table, hasten the beginning of the true and complete redemption of our people through our righteous Shiach speedily in our time. This was written in 1957, when the trend out of Judaism was only growing and growing and growing and growing. And the Rebbe made that statement that we are going to catch them to the sun. We're going to catch them. We're going to schlep them back in. And we have to do so, right? I, the Haggadah, only talks about four. Today we've got a fifth. We have to think about it. And we have to know what it is that pushed them out the door and fix that up. Because if we're going to offer them the same rotten ideology, if we're going to offer them the same watered-down issues, they have no interest in that either. All righty, let's go to the next letter. Um, it's from 5725, 1965. So this is this is um, about ten years later, a little less, yeah, about uh, eight years later. Uh, but the same concepts are still plaguing the Jewish nation. And here, the Rebbe very interestingly um, develops the idea of the the season, the season of Passover. 
It's very relevant that year and also this year, which was a leap year. Why do we have the Jewish leap year? Why do we add a 13th month every few years? Because our, our months are determined by the lunar calendar, which if you have 12 lunar months, you'll have 354 days. The solar calendar, which is the seasons, is 365 days, so there's an 11-day discrepancy. And if you would only follow the lunar calendar, Pesach, which is the 15th day of Nisan, at one point will be in the spring, and then a few years later in the winter, and then the fall, it's all over the place, like the Muslim calendar, which is basically all over the place when it comes to seasons. So therefore, every few years, we add a 13th month in order to make up for that discrepancy or that extra and push everything back. The whole idea of the leap year is that Pesach should be in spring. Why? What's so unique about spring? So I'll go through this a little bit quicker than we did the other letter, but it's a, it's a very fascinating concept here. All right. The exodus from Egypt was ordained by God to take place in the month of the spring. So it's not just a holiday of Passover, but the story that happened in the exodus was specifically in spring. Aviv, Aviv there you go. Moreover, the Torah has ordained that special care should be taken in order that Pesach should always occur in the month of spring. As it is written, observe the month of spring and keep the Passover unto God your God. For in the month of spring, God your God has brought you out of Egypt by night. This is not really about Passover. This is about the calendar. <laughs> observe Passover in the month of spring is telling us that we should set up the calendar in a way that Pesach, which is the 15th of Nisan, which is determined by a lunar cycle, should always happen in the spring. In the spring, In order to ensure that Pesach should indeed occur in the month of spring, in view of the fact that our calendar is based on the moon, and the lunar year, in other words, 12 lunar months, is, only, is about 11 days shorter than the solar year, while the four seasons of the year are determined by the sun. So therefore, our calendar provides a leap year once every two or three years with the addition of a whole month other as this year. In this way, the lunar year is reconciled with the solar year and Pesach always occurs in the spring. All the other months of the year and all our festivals are thus regulated accordingly so that they too occur in their due season. So what is the, what is the, 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 the essential point? Why do the holidays have to be in their season? Because Pesach has to be in the spring. The circumstance of the exodus from Egypt being in the month of spring is explained by our sages as a special divine benevolence in taking the Jews out of Egypt during the best time of the year. Imagine, go, imagine going out of Egypt in the winter. It's freezing cold. Come on. Come on, God. But in the spring, it's beautiful. It's great weather. So God is very nice to us. He even schedules. He schedules our, mm -hmm. uh, how do you say, our journeys, our departures, our, our outdoors, uh, you know, the outdoors, uh, uh, the outdoor activities at a good time, at a great time for us to be out there. So that is, it's actually a very simple, I mean, it's profound. God is being very nice to us. But is that the whole reason why the Exodus was in spring? Is that the whole reason why Pesach has to be in spring? There's got to be something deeper here. However, as in all matters of Torah, there are here also many significant aspects and lessons, both for the community and for the individual. <laughs> One of the aspects which I wish to bring out here will become clear in the light of the circumstances preceding the Exodus from Egypt. So now the Rebbe is going to frame the situation. He's going to kind of set up um, the, 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 the reality right before the Exodus. For hundreds of years, the Jews had been enslaved by a mighty nation which had subjugated all surrounding nations. 
imposing its dominion upon them, not merely by brute force, its chariots and horsemen, but also by its overwhelming preponderance in science and technology in all matters which are now termed the culture and civilization. The culture and civilization of the Egyptians were based on the forces of nature and natural phenomena, especially the Nile River. It hardly ever rains in Egypt, but human ingenuity developed an elaborate irrigation system which had turned Egypt into a flourishing garden surrounded by deserts. So we've got the Nile, which rises up naturally, and you have this irrigation system that was made by man. So we have nature and we have human ingenuity. This is a recipe for disaster. <laughs> All right. These circumstances brought about a profuse idolatrous culture, which was characterized by two main features, the deification of the forces of nature and the deification of the powers of man who was able to utilize the forces of nature. From here, it is but a short step to the deification of Pharaoh who personified the Egyptian ideal of the Superman. This system, which viewed the world as a conglomeration of many natural forces, of which the human element was a component, coupled as it was with the philosophy of my might and the strength of my hand that made me this wealth, led to the lowest spiritual, moral, and ethical depravity, which also justified the most shameless enslavement of and most vicious atrocities toward a physically weaker individual and nation. You know of a more modern day uh, philosophy that brought to that? Have any of you studied the history of the Nazis? Initially, their thing was the Ubermensch, right? The, the Superman, the you know the best genes, the best type. Right? And who everyone else, they're, they're subtypes, especially the Jews, they're cockroaches, right? How they determine if someone's Jewish or not, they would see the shape of their head, this, that, the color of their skin, and the color of their of their eyes, and the color of their hair. Why was it? What do you mean? It's all about me, it's all about man. It's all about my abilities, my my wisdom, my ingenuity. The cult and superstition of the Egyptians reached their zenith. At the time of the annual reawakening of the forces of nature, the month of spring, the month, the month which was under the zodiacal sign of the ram. Aries or Aries? How do you say this? Aries. There you go. And the ram was one of the main sacred symbols of the Egyptian cult. Why did they serve the ram? Because the ram represented spring. And what happens in spring? Nature is blossoming. Ah, nature was dormant, was hiding, and now it's blossoming. Great. Now the man can blossom as well, too. That's why they served the ram. I think started to come together now. <laughs> Suddenly, and, and, and by the way, the Jews were under this, this, this huge, very heavy, very powerful influence of the Egyptians for years, for two centuries. Suddenly appears Maisha Rabbeinu with the divine title. I have surely remembered. The time has come when the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has willed the liberation of the Jews from Pharaoh's hands and from Egyptian exile. Such a statement was out of the blue, made no sense based on everything. 210 years have el had elapsed since the Jews were subjugated to Pharaoh. Some of them already were totally immersed in the Egyptian culture. 
No help whatever could be expected from the surrounding nations. No single slave had ever succeeded in escaping from Egypt. There simply was no prospect in the natural order of things of liberating the Jewish people from Egypt. So this is like completely from left field. And yet Moshe Rabbeinu assures them that the time of liberation has arrived. He was talking to a people that based on everything that they had experienced for 200 years, this made no sense. It was an impossibility. By the way, in recent times, there was such a reality. Jews in Soviet Russia, those that were trapped behind the Iron Curtain, you speak to people that lived there. I mean, my father was too young to remember this concept, but I spoke to people that were teenagers at the time. They said, if you would come and tell us Mashiach is coming, we would believe you more than we would believe that we could leave Soviet Russia. It was an impossibility. 1972, they had thousands left. It was a huge miracle. In the late 80s, if someone would tell you that communism was falling, they would laugh you out of the room. I've read different things that like, senators were writing about communist Russia in 86, 87. They said, no way. On the contrary, there's a resurgence with Gorbachev. And, uh, two years later, <laughs> and the Rebbe called in a few activists in Israel and said, you should arrange with the government that they should build thousands of housing units for the thousands of Russian Jews that are coming out. They were shocked. They believed everything they ever said. What? Thousands of Jews coming out? Gorbachev? No way. And that's what, in a year, everything changed. There was a housing crisis. How are we going to house all the Russian Jews? This is what happened to the Jews in Egypt. According to the forces of nature, according to the natural way of things, it was impossible to leave. Comes Meshav and says, we're leaving. Watch, we're going to leave. However, there is one condition. And right before the Exodus, he told them, withdraw. And take unto yourselves a lamb, the ram, right, for your families and offer the Passover sacrifice. What does withdraw mean? Withdraw from the idolatry of the land and take unto yourselves, take unto yourselves a lamb, that which was held sacred and deified by the Egyptians because it personified spring, it personified Aries, the zodiac, and offer it as a paschal sacrifice unto God. It is not enough to deny the Egyptian idolatry in the recesses of one's heart, nor even in the privacy of one's home, quietly and stealthily. But it has to be done openly without fear, in accordance with all the details which were connected with the Paschal sacrifice in Egypt. You got to roast it. When was the last time someone made a barbecue and you didn't smell it? Imagine 600,000 families are roasting a, a, a lamb in Egypt. The whole place stunk. Everyone knew that they were killing those lambs and roasting them and eating them. God didn't want them to just, you know, slaughter it. Then, ah, you know, let's just eat it quickly. No, no, no. This is going to be big. Everyone's going to see this. What do you mean? We're, we're, we're going to counter this powerful culture, this culture that had proven itself correct for so many hundreds of years. If that is done, Meshur Rabbeinu assures, in the name of the Almighty, not only will liberation from Egypt be achieved, but Pharaoh himself will urge them to leave Egypt. And the liberation will come not at a time when the forces of nature are dormant and concealed. You're not going to go out from the back door. You're not going to go out when nature's not looking, playing peekaboo, hide and see. No, no, no. But precisely in the month of spring, in the very middle of this month, when nature reveals its greatest powers, when nature is at its zenith, that's when we're going to be. That's when we're going to break that ideology that deifies nature. In this way, it is emphasized that our world is not a comp composite 
of separate worlds, a world of nature and of natural forces, and a world of the supernatural, wherein now one, now the other attains supremacy. It's not one or the other. Oh, in the winter, when nature is hiding, when nature is dormant, nature is asleep, that's when you can have miracles. That's when there's room for God in this world. No, no, no. In spring, nature is out in its biggest, in, in its glory. That's when we're going to have miracles. That's when we're going to show that nature is not above all. There is but one and only God who is the absolute master of the whole world and who unifies the whole world into one. This recognition came to the highest expression at the giving of the Torah, the culmination and goal of the liberation from Egypt, which began with the words, I am God, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. There shall be no other gods. And God, you know, there's a famous question. Why did God introduce himself as the God that took the Jews out of Egypt? Why didn't he say, I am your God who created heaven and earth? Isn't that a bigger deal than taking 600,000 Jews out of Egypt and splitting a sea? Of course it's a bigger deal to do that. Imagine a guy comes and says, hey, you know who I am? I'm the guy that blew up the hotel. Cool. The other guy goes, you know who I am? I'm the guy that built the hotel. Oh, uh-huh. He built the hotel. This guy thinks he's a he's so cool he can blow up the hotel. By the way, to blow up a hotel, you need to know what you're doing, right? To blow up the bridge, you have to know what you're doing. But to build a bridge, you really have to know what you're doing, right? So comes God at the, at the revelation at Sinai, right? and he says, I am God who took you out of Egypt. Fine. Very nice. It's pretty cool stuff. You were able to take a sea and split it. But if you would tell us that you created the sea, that's pretty awesome. Nah. You know what God's trying to tell us? That I'm the creator you know. What you thought before Exodus was, I created a world. And I created it as a composite. Different realms controlling it at different times. There's nature, there's above nature, and they don't interfere. So when nature is in control, Egypt is in control. Man is in control. There's no room for God. You're able to deify the powers of nature, deify the man who is able to manipulate nature or to harness nature, right? That's why he comes at the giving of the Torah and he says, I am God who took you out of Egypt. I control nature and miracles together. There's no separation between God and nature. It's all one. It's all one thing. Just as in Egypt of old, so also nowadays, there are such who fashion their life on the basis of the deification of the so-called forces of nature, coupled with the philosophy of my might and strength of my hand. That's how they live their life, right? The world dictates my store has got to be open seven days a week or six days a week, and one of them has to be Saturday. That's the only way to make money. Why? Because that's what all the professionals say. Professionals say, if I want my, if, 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 if I want to be healthy, I have to have some non-kosher food as well. That's what the doctor said. And who's going to say anything against the doctor, right? Some have found a solution is that in their homes, they make room also for God. However, in their social life, they follow the Joneses and even outdo them. Right? So yeah, I want to be like that guy. I want to be like that family. I want to be like that, uh, everything. Comes the festival of Pesach with a reminder once again. I have surely remembered you. You have no choice in the matter. This takes us back to the story of Ezekiel. The Jews come to Ezekiel and they say, stop bothering us with God's prophecies. We want to be like all the rest of the nations. 
We want to serve idols. That's it. We're not interested in God's protection. We're not interested in whatever. We're done. It was, it was a nice experiment, right? Thousand-year experiment almost. 900-year experiment. And now it's time to move on. Become Persians. You know what God responded to them? No luck, buddies. You don't want to have me, but I want to have you. I will rule over you whether you like it or not. That's why he brought Ahasuerus. He basically told him, guys, you think you're comfortable in Persia? No, 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 it doesn't work that way. In Persia, you're very, it's, it's very dangerous for you there. Right? The, so what's the idea here? You think you're going to run away from Judaism? You can run, but you can't hide. God is still going to look for you because God wants you. The Almighty remembers you, and you must obey the order of withdrawal to reject the idolatry of the land in whatever form it expresses itself. And to do so openly, without fear, and with dignity. Then you must also fulfill the take unto yourselves, to take yourself and all that you possess, all your capacities and powers, dedicate them to your true eternal Jewish self. Moreover, you must do all this in the month of spring. You must not allow yourself to be confused by misleaders who would have you believe that since there's a flourishing world around us with a man in its center, endowed with supremacy of might and power, then these are your gods, O Israel. This is your idol to which you are enslaved, and there is no room in heaven for fend for God. Don't, don't listen to them. Rather, the contrary. In the month of spring, God, your God, has brought you out of Egypt. God, who is your God, he's a personal God, takes you out of slavery in the month of spring. While the world in blossom, with all its wonders upon wonders, helps you to see the truth even more clearly. And this is what God, and, and this is, what is the truth? That God is the source of all life and being. Or to quote the blessing which we recite in the spring, there's a, there's a, there's a blessing, you know, if you go out in the spring and you see a tree that's blossoming and the fruits are coming out, there's a blessing to make. Not the Shekhiyanu. It's a different blessing. It's in, it's in the Siddur. And it goes like this. God, our God, who is king of the universe, has not made the world deficient of anything. In other words, nature is not a, uh, it does not contradict God. On the contrary, it complements our knowledge and wonder of God and appreciation of God, specifically the spring. So that's what the Rebbe is emphasizing here. What, the, the fact that we are, that the Torah is adamant that Passover should be celebrated in spring, it's not just because historically that's when it happened. There's a reason why it happened in spring, and there's a message being communicated to us. Spring represents nature in its glory. Pesach, Exodus, represents that nature. Don't glorify it. Don't deify it. On the contrary, it's only there as another tool from God. May God grant that Pesach, the season of our liberation, should bring to every Jew and Jewess in the midst of all our Jewish people, real liberation from all hindrances and limitations in order to serve the Almighty with a perfect heart. And that the liberation of the individual should lead to the liberation of the whole Jewish people to the true, perfect redemption through our righteous Mashiach speedily in our time with a blessing for a kosher and happy Pesach. And with that, we conclude today's uh, lesson. Again, if you want to get the book, it's an amazing book to the sons and daughters of our people in Israel everywhere. It's a set of two, two books. All righty. Well, thank you all for joining us. And uh, I, look forward, I don't know if next week, um, 